grab a Bible and turn with me to Acts chapter 13. Yes, Acts chapter 13. If you're using a pew Bible, you can find that on page 922. You probably didn't expect me to say Acts this morning. We're supposed to be in Revelation. The message to Thyatira was next. It was hard to pull away from that series for a couple of weeks. Uh, we will return, uh, but I, I, I'm not your only pastor, and through talking with the other elders uh, together, we thought it's time to address the church uh, on evangelism. Uh, like Jesus does for the churches in Revelation, I think there's much to commend uh, Redeemer Church for. Doctrinal orthodoxy is one of them. We clarify gospel truth in a world of lies. Uh, moral resilience. Uh, you guys don't tolerate sin in a culture of moral permissiveness. Generosity. You love meeting the needs of the saints as they arise. Meaningful membership. Not only do you hold one another accountable, but, but you enjoy one another's presence. Uh, you stick around to like 2 o'clock sometimes just conversing with with one another. You, you stay late at each other's houses because you enjoy one another's company. There, there is much more to commend. But one area that needs growth is evangelism. Speaking the gospel and persuading others to enter God's kingdom by repentance and faith in Christ. One of the distinctives that's listed on our church website is uh, evangelistic. Evangelistic. This is what we're telling the community we are like. We are evangelistic. It says we are constrained by the love of Jesus Christ to extend the free offer of salvation to all people without distinction. That's really well worded. But is it who we are? Okay, by confession, there's no doubt, sure. But by lifestyle, is it who we are? Maybe a few of you. Few of you excel in this, but how does it become all of us? That's one reason I'm preaching this week and next on evangelism. Another reason is that we want to equip those with, with questions. Over time, we've had folks asking questions about evangelism. They're new to the faith and want to know how and, and what it involves. Or they've been following Christ for some time. They've seen evangelism done, but in some peculiar or or poor ways. So a growing number of members want to know the way forward, and I hope to provide some guidance on that and at least get us thinking in the right direction. One more reason is we have observed the Spirit working among several members in this area of evangelism. Some the Spirit has gifted in evangelism. Some the Spirit is moving to pray for growth in evangelism. A couple of girls... Uh, prayed for four hours for our church to grow in this area the other day. Ben hosted a meeting with ten or so people who also brainstormed ways for this church to embody further our Savior who came to seek and save the lost. And so we want to take some wood and we want to put it around those embers, all right, and, and see what the Lord might do. So with that in mind, let's look at Acts chapter 13, verse 44 to 52, uh, a week earlier, Paul has preached Christ from the Scriptures. He comes to the Jewish 
synagogues and, and he explains from, from the Old Testament how God sent them a Savior, uh, Jesus. He explains how the law can't save them, only Jesus frees people from their sins. And on hearing this, the Jews beg him to return the next Sabbath and word gets out. And now the whole city shows up to hear in verse 44. It says, the next Sabbath, almost the whole city gathered to hear the word of the Lord. But when the Jews saw the crowds, they were filled with jealousy and began to contradict what was spoken by Paul, reviling him. And Paul and Barnabas spoke out boldly, saying, It was necessary that the word of God be spoken first to you. And since you thrust it aside and judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life, behold, we are turning to the Gentiles. For so the Lord has commanded us, saying, I have made you a light for the Gentiles, that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. And when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord, and as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. And the word of the Lord was spreading throughout the whole region. But the Jews incited the devout women of high standing, and the leading men of the city stirred up persecution against Paul and Barnabas, and drove them out of their district. But they shook off the dust from their feet against them, and went to Iconium. And the disciples were filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. So on two occasions here, you see the word of God spreading. One involves the city, that's verse 44, and the other involves the whole region, that's verse 49. But as the word spreads in both of these places, what you see is this very unique pattern that emerges. The gospel gets reiterated for the Jews, the gospel then gets rejected by the Jews, and then there's a missional response to reach the nations, and then those who believe rejoice. Okay? And that pattern is going to shape where we're going today. So first, the gospel gets reiterated. In verse 44, they gather to hear the word of the Lord. And then, and then again in verse 49, the word of the Lord was spreading. Well, what word is that? It is the gospel of Jesus Christ. Gospel means good news. The bad news is that we are sinners by nature... The, the consequences of our rebellion against God, our death and condemnation, God's law condemns us. And what's worse is that nobody can rescue themselves. And so Paul, though, he brings good news. Okay, He announces that God sent Israel a Savior uh, back in the first part of chapter 13. His name is Jesus Christ, and he sent this Savior just as he promised in the Scriptures. Jesus lived the perfect life we should have lived. Jesus suffered our punishment. Jesus died our death. Jesus rose again from the dead, proving that he and he alone is God's Messiah, God's Savior. Through his life, death, and resurrection, sinners like us get forgiveness of sins, freedom from condemnation, and an eternity of joy in God's presence. That's where Paul has taken them, using two psalms and also a passage from Isaiah ...about God's covenant with David. Okay, And then the Jews respond to Paul's message in two ways. Some are rightly excited. They beg him to return and teach others. But many reject the gospel. They reject the gospel here. Verse 45. When the Jews saw the crowds, they were filled with jealousy... ...and began to contradict what was spoken by Paul. What gets them so miffed? We'll look back at verse 39. Some words Paul said to them. 
by Jesus, everyone who believes is freed from everything from which you could not be freed by the law of Moses. Now imagine what that sounds like to a people who for centuries have boasted in their law keeping. God put the law in place to set Israel apart from the nations, yes, but never did he intend for the law to become a point of boasting in your own righteousness. The law was temporary. The law pointed to a coming Savior. And yet the Jews have absolutized the law so that, they, that things like circumcision and food laws become these points of boasting over the nations. This is how we're better than all of you. And then enters Paul who says anybody is welcome into God's covenant people through Jesus. Even more, you're not God's covenant people. By your law keeping. The law can't free you from condemnation. Only Christ can. So he undermines all their grounds for boasting. The Jews must admit that their law doesn't make them better. It condemns them. The Jews must admit that Gentiles are on equal footing at the cross. Salvation is full and free to all by faith in Christ. So they get jealous and they contradict the gospel. Paul and Barnabas then give a twofold response here. A twofold response. To begin, they expose the consequences of their unbelief. Verse 46. Since you thrust aside God's word and judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life, behold, we're turning to the Gentiles. So when you reject Jesus, you're not a suitable candidate for eternal life. You condemn yourself. In verse 51, they also shake the dust off from their feet against the Jews. And we know from the Gospels that this was a prophetic sign of judgment. But there's another piece to their response, which is going to be our primary focus this morning. They extend salvation to the nations. They extend salvation to the nations. Look at verse 47. Since you thrust it aside and judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life, behold, we are turning to the Gentiles. We are turning to the Gentiles. Now, Paul doesn't mean this is the first time the Gentiles hear the gospel. Paul also doesn't mean that he's just finished with these stubborn Jews from now on. What does he mean? And the answer comes with Paul's use of Isaiah 49, verse 6. He says, I have made you a light for the Gentiles that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. Basically, what Paul's saying here is, is he recognizes that the Jews hold a privileged place in God's redemption story, but that that same story includes God extending his salvation beyond the Jews to the nations by the ministry of a particular servant, and that servant's mission determines Paul's mission. So to grasp the significance of this, why don't we turn together back to Isaiah 49. Isaiah 49. <clears throat> and while you're turning there, I'll explain a theme that's already developing. Back in Isaiah 41, 
God identifies Israel, the nation, as his chosen servant. Okay? But as the prophecy continues, Israel, the nation, is an unfaithful servant. So Isaiah 42, 19 says, Who is blind but my servant? Or deaf as my messenger whom I send? And so this, this servant nation is unfaithful. They are unfit to accomplish God's will. But Isaiah 42 also introduces another servant. And he too is God's chosen servant. But this servant is faithful. He brings justice to the nations. In Isaiah 42, 1, God gives him as a covenant for Israel and a light for the nations. Isaiah 42, 6. And so it, Isaiah, what he's doing here is, is intentionally, he's, he's oscillating between the, the servant nation who is unfaithful and, the, and, and, and unfit and the servant individual who is faithful. Okay, and we find this same oscillation when we come to Isaiah 48 and 49. Isaiah 48 reveals Israel, the nation, as a stubborn servant uh, in exile who needs God's redemption. Isaiah 49 then introduces us to another servant individual who not only embodies what Israel is supposed to be, but extends salvation to the nation. So look at verse 1 of Isaiah 49. Listen to me, O coastlands, and give attention, you peoples from afar. The Lord called me from the womb. From the body of my mother he named me. He made my mouth like a sharp sword. Now we talked about that a few weeks ago in Revelation. Right? And what that meant there. He made my mouth like a sharp sword. In the, in the, in the shadow of his hand he hid me. He made me a polished arrow. In his quiver he hid me away. And he said to me, you are my servant Israel, in whom I will be glorified. But I said, I have labored in vain. I have spent my strength for nothing in vanity, yet surely my right is with the Lord and my recompense with my God. And now the Lord says, he who formed me from the womb to be his servant, to bring back Jacob to him, and that Israel might be gathered to him, for I am honored in the eyes of the Lord, and my God has become my strength. He says, It is too light a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to bring back the preserved of Israel. I will make you as a light for the nations, that my salvation may reach to the ends of the earth. So what is Isaiah's message here? Well, at first glance, it seems like he's talking about the servant nation. He plainly calls them in verse 3, you are my servant Israel. But, but as you keep reading, the picture focuses on an individual that does something for Israel. You see it in verse 5. The servant cannot be Israel the nation because he's going to bring Israel the nation back to God. You see the distinctions? And so we're getting a servant individual called Israel who saves the servant nation called Israel. So how do we make sense of that? Well, the servant individual embodies everything the servant nation was supposed to be. The servant is Israel in as much as he functions like Israel. He's what you might call the true Israel, the ideal Israel. 
He's the ideal Israel, not just because God shows his glory in him, but because he's going to spread God's salvation to the ends of the earth. And that's what Israel was set apart for, wasn't it? To be blessed and to be a blessing for all peoples. And so the servant fulfills this role truly. But who is the servant individual? Isaiah doesn't know his name. We know his name. Because centuries later in the Gospel of Luke, we find a man named Simeon taking baby Jesus into his arms and blessing God, saying, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace For my eyes have seen your salvation that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples, a light for revelation to the Gentiles. A light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. And so Simeon reveals Isaiah's servant individual as Jesus Jesus is the true faithful servant and he is sent to bring Israel back to God and then extend God's salvation to the nations. And the further you get into Isaiah, of course, the more clearer this becomes, right? Because the servant redeems Israel by giving his life as an atoning sacrifice for their sins. That's Isaiah 53. The New Testament everywhere then applies that to Jesus. Jesus saves Israel and the nations like ourselves because Jesus was pierced for our transgressions. Now, I should also add another detail here. The servant's mission wasn't going to be smooth. It is actually a frustrating one. Notice the servant's cry in Isaiah 49, verse 4. I have labored in vain. I have spent my strength for nothing and vanity. In other words, his, his mission to bring Israel back to God, it, it seems like it's failing, and that's precisely when God responds, it's too small a thing to bring back the remnant of Israel. I'm bringing the whole, I'm bringing all the nations through you. So your work is not in vain. It might feel like that. It might appear that way, but your work is not in vain. I'm bringing the nations through you. And that describes Jesus. He comes to his own people, the Jews. They reject him. He dies. He rises again. And when he rises, He says, go therefore and make disciples of all nations. So truly Jesus is the servant of Isaiah 49.6. How then does Paul apply Isaiah 49.6 to us? That's what it says in verse 47. Look at it. For so the Lord has commanded... Us. So the Lord has commanded us, saying, I have made you a light for the Gentiles. He has commanded us, saying, I have made you. And the you is still singular from Isaiah 49, 6. So is Paul claiming to be the servant of Isaiah 49? Paul alludes to this same prophecy in Acts 26, verse 23. Only there he clearly says that it's Jesus who proclaims light to the nations. How then can Paul say that God commanded us? You see the issue here? How is Paul reading Isaiah such that in a text about Jesus... 
he finds a command for himself. He's saying that Jesus' mission as the servant continues through us. When God unites us to Christ in salvation, God unites us to Christ in mission. When God unites us to Christ in salvation, God unites us to Christ in mission. Now, someone could probably object, well, the us here is limited to Barnabas and Paul. Well, Paul says, imitate me as I imitate Jesus. So there you go. All right? We have such a bond with Jesus that his mission becomes ours. Didn't we see this in Revelation 2.13 a while back with Antipas? Christ calls him my faithful witness. Why does he call him my faithful witness? Because he followed in the footsteps of the faithful witness, Jesus Christ. Jesus' mission to extend salvation to the nations became Antipas' mission. And here it's Paul and Barnabas' mission. And in Christ, it's your mission. To belong to Christ is to have Christ living in you, extending his salvation to others through you. So here's your first point of application. Union with Christ in salvation means union with Christ in mission, in proclamation. Union with Christ is a rich, encompassing subject. Theologians have rightly called it the central truth of the whole doctrine of salvation. It stretches from your election before the foundation of the world to your future glorification in the new heavens and the new earth. But often overlooked are the implications for missions and evangelism. And perhaps that is because we tend to reduce our theology to fit the life we would have lived anyway without Jesus. In this case, we tend to reduce union with Christ to things that leave us comfortable. Let's put it another way. If you want Christ for forgiveness and freedom and heaven, while avoiding his cross, while avoiding sacrifice in the path to bring others to faith while going about life as you would have done anyway without Jesus, then you do not get union with Christ. Union with Christ shapes what we're passionate about, what we give ourselves to, how we do life now, how we engage others for his sake. If there's no part of you that wants to share Christ with others, if there's no yearning to save others, no compassion welling up to help them know God, to help them taste and experience the grace we have experienced, you need to ask some serious questions about your relationship with Jesus. Do you truly belong to Him? Is He living in you? Are you nurturing your relationship with Jesus who came for the sick 
and for the broken and for the outcast? Are you drawing from his passion to seek and save the lost? Evangelism doesn't begin by me standing up here and saying, you need to evangelize more. It begins with God grafting you into the vine of Jesus Christ so that his life flows through yours. It is impossible to make a corpse dance. But when Jesus gives life, you dance. You leap over the mountains to announce good news. Why? Because he lives in you. And God sent him into the world to extend salvation through you. He is the Son of Man who seeks and saves the lost, who sits with the woman at the well while his disciples go grab lunch, who calls Matthew the tax collector, who eats with sinners to bring them true and lasting joy. And he's in you. He's in us. Consider next that evangelism is a matter of spreading joy. It's a matter of spreading joy. What happened with Paul and Barnabas? Some reject their message, but verse 48 says, When the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord, and as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. Conversion leads to joy. And you know that. Because it brought joy to your life, didn't it? I doubt that you'll run into many people who simply don't want to be happy. In general, people want joy. The problem is that sin so easily blinds people that we pursue joy in the wrong things or for the wrong reasons. We're far too easily pleased. The joy promised by one experience doesn't last, so we move on to another. There are many things that God has created us to enjoy, but the greatest joy is to have your sins forgiven and to know God. To be brought into a right relationship with God. A while back, I had a dream that differed from others. Don't freak out. I saw several mountains, and on the tops of each of the mountains were, were people from every tribe and tongue and language, and they were celebrating and singing and dancing and rejoicing. It was the most beautiful scenery of unity and peace and joy. And then I saw Ben. And he was leaping. He's the only one with the legs long enough to do this. He was leaping from one mountain to the next on the top of each mountain. And Ben comes to me as he draws near and he grabs me by the arms and he says, Can you see it? Can you hear it? How beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news. And then he leapt off to tell others. I don't usually share dreams, especially from the pulpit. I don't want people getting the wrong impression that we put more stock in experiences than we do in the scriptures. 
At the same time, that dream illustrates Isaiah's vision of the person who brings good news. Isaiah 52, verse 7, How beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news, who publishes peace, who publishes peace, who brings good news of happiness, who publishes salvation, who says to Zion, your God reigns. These are your feet, Christian. Ephesians 6 includes some special footwear, doesn't it? It's part of your armor, as shoes for your feet, it says, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. There's only two offensive weapons in Ephesians 6. The shoes on your feet, which is the gospel of peace, and the sword in your hand, which is the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, he says, right? And the image is one of you, not just sitting back and protecting yourself, but you advancing across enemy lines to speak the word, bring the gospel of peace. In union with Christ, God has made you to leap over the mountains to spread his joy. If you belong to Jesus, he has equipped you. You're not going alone. You're not going in your own strength. He makes your feet to run and to tell others of his grace. Third, bring salvation to the ends of the earth, starting with those around you. Bring salvation to the ends of the earth, starting with those around you. Andy used to be a member here. He's now serving overseas. He, he once put it this way when he preached on this text. When you become part of Christ's body, you're not merely a passionate, you're not merely a passive recipient of grace, you're made to be an agent of grace, an ambassador for Christ, a light to the nations. We have to be careful. We cannot pat ourselves on the back because we support a few missionaries overseas while we stay silent here. Closer to the mark and closer to the New Testament is that our missionaries are an extension of the evangelistic activity already taking place here. Now, evangelistic activity will look different for each person and family. Okay, the Lord has apportioned us with various spiritual gifts. He has apportioned us with various ministry responsibilities. I'm not just talking about in the church. I'm talking about out in the world. He has given us different household arrangements. He has given us different vocational obligations. Some of those vocations perhaps taking more energy than others. We also vary in our physical abilities, don't we? Some are, being, are more limited than others. And that's okay. The point is how are we all working together with what the Lord has given us 
to serve the onward march of the gospel. All right? Let's see if I can make this more concrete. All of us can begin with prayer. Okay? Prayer. In Psalm 2, God says of Christ, Ask of me, and I will give the nations as your heritage. Ask of me. That is Jesus' prayer. And it should become our prayer too. God is the one who must tear down the strongholds. We can't. God must make his word effective in people's lives. God must open the door for us to share the word. God must illumine the eyes of the heart. And so pray for that to happen. I remember uh, sitting in a care group leaders meeting one time, Kim, but you were helping Craig at the time, and Kim shared a, a story about over 40 years you prayed for your brother, right? For over 40 years praying for his brother come the Lord and the Lord saved him. Kim, Kim was, in that meeting I just remember Kim was praying for his brother every day longer than I'd been alive. You need people in your church like that. Pray for God to work. There are people in your life without Christ. For whatever reason, the Lord has brought them into your life. You see them weekly, daily, grocery stores, coffee shops, classrooms, the office, the parks where you like to play. You meet people. I want you to just write down their names and start praying for the Lord to save them and then to, to use you in the saving of them. Take their names with you to care group and ask your care group to start praying for them. And then care group members follow up with one another as the weeks go by. <laughs> hey, did you sit down with, with Jim at lunch the other day for work? How did it go? What can I pray for? And then as you're praying for them, look for ways to enter their, their lives. Some of you are already entering. The, the entering has already taken place, but, but look for ways to enter their lives. Jesus entered a broken world to save sinners. Our mission is the same. Jesus said, as the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. And that could be showing hospitality to co-workers or having a family down the street over for Saturday breakfast. It could mean coaching a local sports team maybe and interacting with the, the parents or frequenting a coffee shop. It could mean calling an old friend from college. It could mean choosing, a, choosing to attend a public school. That's what our missionaries do a lot of times. They intentionally put their family in a public school setting that they might establish relationships with others. You can help with tutoring after school. It could be following up with someone who, who confides in you for help or for counsel. It could be helping at the Pregnancy Help Center or meeting families at, at West Elementary. Find ways to enter people's lives and then build the relationship. Invest beyond surface-level conversations. Ask questions. Go out of your way to show concern. And do all this to truly know people. Know them. 
Move beyond names and occupations and, and hobbies. Learn what makes them tick. Where are they finding their identity? What are some of their greatest fears? What are some of their greatest hopes? What makes them excited? What do they believe? Only then will we know how to apply the truth with love, how to use words that are fitting for the occasion, and how to walk in wisdom toward outsiders. I like the way Jonathan Dodson puts it. He says, love is inefficient. It slows down long enough to understand people and their objections to the gospel. Love recognizes that people are complex and then meets them in their need. And then once you know people, share Christ in meaningful ways. The more we grasp not just what a person does, but why they do it, the more we'll be able to connect their broken lives to the storyline of Scripture. The more we'll be able to apply the gospel with specificity and compassion to the areas people are hurting to the, and to the objections that people raise or to the idols that people love. Now we're going to look at some examples of how to do this next week um, as we look at the examples set by Jesus and the Apostles. For now, it's also crucial that we look for opportunities to serve others sacrificially as well. The gospel message shouldn't be divorced from good deeds toward the people that we engage and befriend. And so, that's a long way about saying pray, 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 and then enter, build, no, share, serve. Just a helpful way to remember Dusty Devers introduced it to our church long ago. Enter, build, no, share, serve. In union with Christ, bring light to those around you who sit in darkness. Pattern your life after the one who came to seek and save the lost. You're united to him not only in salvation, but also in gospel proclamation. And then one last thing. Even when rejected, trust the Lord's plan and reward. Even when rejected, trust the Lord's plan and reward. The servant's mission came with its frustrations. And Paul and Barnabas experienced that too. Being united to the servant will also mean that we're rejected like the servant. And when that happens, we shouldn't despair that something's wrong with the gospel. That's a temptation, right? This message must not be powerful, not working. We shouldn't give up or grow cynical about sharing the gospel. Like, like it just, this is just pointless. No, when people reject us, we respond as the servant himself did. Do you remember his cry in Isaiah 49? I have labored in vain. I have spent, spent my strength for nothing in vanity. He's making that, his, his cry to the Lord. That's what it feels like. Some of you have felt that way with a wayward son or daughter. You have felt, you have cried out to the Lord at night. Have we just labored for vain here? Some of you have felt that with extended family. Some of you feel that way over a, a wayward spouse or over a friend who has disowned you because of the way you follow Jesus. 
And again and again you sacrifice and you speak truth, but in the end they keep pushing you away. I have spent my strength for nothing in vanity has been your cry. And I think you can see from our text, the servant sympathizes with you in that. Jesus knows what that's like. And still, where does the servant place his trust? Yet surely, he says, my right is with the Lord and my recompense with my God. So he trusts the Lord to reward him for his faithfulness. And what has God become for him? I am honored in the eyes of the Lord and my God has become my strength. In this attitude of trust, the Lord makes him an effective servant. Right? God, this is our memory verse this week. God is able to make all grace abound to you so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good People will reject you, but know this, your labor is not in vain. Your right is with the Lord, your reward is coming, church. Until then, he is able to make you an effective servant. He is able to make all grace abound to you so that you can abound in every good work. And when he does, may he bring his salvation to others through us. Let's pray together. Father, we do ask that you would make us faithful servants. In the midst of our sorrows and weariness, and on days when we feel like everything we're doing is just vain. Would you help us remember the ministry of the servant who has gone before us? He has endured the way of the cross for us that we might not grow weary and lose heart in this. Make us like him. Help us to trust in you in those moments. And as you supply us with all the grace we need, open our mouths to declare your excellencies to others. In Jesus' name, amen.